1: Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast, part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. I'm Tara Bowen-Biggs, here with Dan Mareng. It is a holiday week. We are getting ready for Thanksgiving later on the week. Dan, what are you thankful for this year?
2: Oh, do I have to be thankful? Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've got kind of a, 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 a shtick. I have to be kind of pessimistic all the time, so I'm just going to go with... Uh... I'm thankful for another year. We'll go with that. (laughs) It's just boring and bland and awful.
1: Well, you know, I'm thankful for my family, but I'm also thankful for something related to the Blazers. I am thankful today we have a guest yes. who's going to bring us some national perspective about the Portland Trailblazers. Today, we're going to talk to Matt Moore. He's a writer for CBS Sports. He's also the editor emeritus of Hardwood Paroxysm, which is an NBA, which is a uh, NBA blog that was full of unbiased opinions from extremely biased people. Welcome to the show, Matt. Glad to have you here today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be on. Hey, Matt. Um, you know, I- I've wanted to bring you around for a while, um, just because in Portland, as you might assume, um, it- it's a bit of a bubble, and it's uh, it's it's quite insular up here in the Pacific Northwest, and we're we're all up here on our lonesome, so we kind of get caught in an echo chamber. Um, obviously the, the other part of that is anytime anybody national comes in, the idea is that you're national and you have no idea what goes on inside of our little insular bubble. <laughs> so I, I, I know personally, because we've talked about the Blazers now for a couple years on Twitter, I know you've at least watched more than 10 games. And I, I know that's the, the normal accusation of national guys. is You need to watch at least more than 10 games of, of, of a particular team to understand where they're at. So this is something that's kind of bubbled up lately um, that I I wanted to get your opinion on right out of the gate. There, Damian Lillard took to Twitter and was backed up by the Trailblazers media account um, to back up, really, some of the nastiness that's been directed from the Portland Fan base towards Coach Terry Stotts. There, unbelievably, have been people calling for his job. Um, granted, they aren't off to the best start, and they had a, a couple lumps, particularly the Brooklyn game where Yusuf Nurkic was forced to sit down in the fourth quarter. But this has kind of come up out of nowhere, where in the past a lot of it's been directed at uh, President of Basketball Operations, Neil Olshay, um, or it's been directed at the players. From, an, from a national perspective, has that even reached that level yet to where you guys are even hearing inklings like that? No, uh,
0: it's – so here, here's the weird kind of thing about what kind of gets bubbled. So you talk about bubbles. All right, so there's the national perspective, and then there's the around-the-league bubble, and those are two very different worlds. So the national perspective is Terry Stoss is a great coach. He's been awesome. Why would you possibly have an issue with him? He's so great. Look at his offense. Look how good they are. Look how many games they've won. Clearly one of the best coaches out there. That's what like the national perspective, like the nice little baseline. The league bubble has been – very oddly that there was always kind of this this weird undercurrent of a conversation of well we don't know if Olshay or Stotts is going to be there in two to three years as recently as last summer before Olshay signed the extension and then the extension got signed and it was like well okay that's it It like they're going to be around for a while but oddly there was when they were really struggling last year there was a lot of like just these little murmurs that you would hear throughout the league side comments made by league personnel that would suggest like maybe his job wasn't as secure as you might think, which is very different from, again, the national perspective, because the national perspective is again, Terry Stotts is awesome. And none of these problems are related to him. Um, So that gives you kind of an indication of, of, where these weird kind of intersections go. So I would say that if Stotts were to suddenly be severed from the blazers, it wouldn't necessarily surprise everyone in the NDA, but it would very much surprise everyone on like a national media perspective who wouldn't really understand why that's happening. And I would count myself amongst those. that will be like, I have no idea. Like Terry Stotts looks like the Blazers are defending this year. Like this team is really actually pretty good. They are fine. Um, They are right about where they should be in terms of having an optimistic viewpoint. No reason to really get freaked out yet. Uh, So, it's odd that there's these three kind of universes. There's the insular inside of the Blazers bubble. There's the inside of the NBA bubble. And then there's like a national perspective, which is widely different.
2: See, that's kind of what I I was hoping you would break that down for everybody else to kind of understand where this, these different delineations come from, because it's kind of a joke, but in reality, Portland as a market is a media focus, as a topic, as any of that stuff goes they really kind of are on their own island especially without without Seattle up there there's really no reason to venture this way or to look this way unless there's a team from a larger market coming to town or Portland's either stepped in something that they shouldn't be in or they're playing really well those are really the only kind of three times that any of that stuff really pops to the surface and becomes part of that that national discussion that you're talking about um, you hit on something though that I, I really want to transition into right away which is that the fact that Portland is playing defense, do you legitimately think that through 15 games that this is a real thing? I do.
0: I actually do. And it's, I got to do a deeper dive on it. I'll, like, I have the baseline information and have watched them and have seen the improved effort and dynamics that would suggest that this is a real thing. Figuring out why it's happening is what's curious because from like the eye perspective that I've seen, like CJ McCollum to me is playing the best defense of his career, mm-hmm. Like he, he flat out is giving the best effort and is actually making an impact. He's pressuring the ball. He really looks like he's making solid rotations. These are all things that I've noted and like made notes of while I'm watching blazers games. The data says that the blazers are nine points worse on defense than CJ McCollum's on the floor. So Something weird's going on, especially when I look at, at, D- at Damian Lillard, and I kind of think Damian's been largely the same as he's always been. And they're just ever so slightly better with him on the court defensively. So there's dynamics going on that are, are probably really weird that I haven't had a chance to kind of get into. Um, Nurkic is another one where the defense – it has been all over the place with him. It's gone wildly from one extreme to the other. Currently, they're a little bit better when he's on the court, and I've seen nothing but bad play from Yuzif Nurkish defensively, just flat-out bad play from him. Now, his presence is going to make up for some of that with his physicality, mm-hmm. but from what, I've, from what I've seen, there's just been a lot of misrotations, bad decisions, poor effort, et cetera, and yet the results are kind of speaking to another thing. I do think, however, that um, team defense in the NBA – oftentimes is less about individual talent and about whether or not you have a couple of plus defenders and then everyone is bought into a system. And if that's the case, then you really are going to be able to go further. Uh, And that's an issue. I I think so with the Blazers, I think that even if individually none of these guys are dramatically different guys than they were last year, I, I think it's evident that there's an improvement in how they play together that's working to their advantage.
1: So, I have, uh, go ahead, Sarah. Can I jump in with a quick question? So, one one of the things that people have been talking about with the Trailblazers this year is the the fact that you know our defense, the, the team's defensive rating, is a lot better this year. Like you talked about but we had they had this one game at the beginning of the season against the Phoenix Suns which right. really skewed right the analytics or the or the measurables and i'm wondering how do you how do you take those things into account when do you think that they start to measure out and if you if you count you know the good wins do you lost, do, the, do the bad losses offset or how do you account for that when you're trying to analyze the success of a team
0: you start really looking at the outliers as being important um, uh, this season, like this early in the season. Uh, but what's key is, is, is if you're able to look and if the last five games are a good indication of what are in line with what the whole season is, that tells you that, okay, there, there's actually been some positive signs. So like the last five games, you know, like they still have like use of Nurkic has a 93.9 defensive rating. Like there's all of these things that are, that are well in line uh, with kind of an indication that th- there is a stability of defense, I think, on, on in what we're finding. Now, I will say also, um, one thing that I pay a lot of attention to is what's called a win profile. It's like what's the profile um, of, of how the team operates and, and what's the profile of their wins and losses. And with Portland, you're noticing they beat up on bad teams, particularly defensively, this team beats up that Phoenix game. You're right. was an outlier because Phoenix was by far like leaps and bounds, the worst absolute team in the league to start the season. They caught them at the exact right time and did absolutely everything uh, to them in that game. And we're seeing that kind of the same kind of pattern where when the Blazers aren't able to kind of get in a rhythm, they really kind of fall apart. But in their games where they're facing weak opponents, oftentimes they're just, they're just beating the snot out of them. And that really helps their metrics. I don't trust – I'll say this. I don't trust that things are going to sustain over a season until really January 1st. It takes me until all the way through Christmas for me to feel like, okay, we have a good sense of who this team is. I've seen too many teams start off hot in January, start to melt around December 15th, and never recover. Uh, I've seen a lot of teams have terrible starts and then get hot in January and continue on. So even in January, there's a little bit of concern, but not until January 1st do I ever feel like the sample size is reliable enough.
1: Great. Good to know. That's, you know, the the five-game sample. If we continue to keep our eyes on that, we can kind of see a trend and see where things are going with that. Well, one of the things that sort of caught a lot of us by surprise here in Portland is, is we've been always so – that the Blazers' offense has been so dependable over the last several years – and it looks like at times, even though the defense seems to be improving, the offense seems to be suffering. Have you noticed anything like that? Yeah,
0: they look a little clunkier. I mean, a lot of it is like the shooting. I think they're not able to, to space the floor kind of effectively. Um, and a lot of that's Evan Turner's playing really well but evan turner doesn't space the floor and that impacts everybody else right so i think evan turner's been terrific this season and his plus minus kind of illustrates that and his defense has been awesome but at the same time like he just doesn't space the floor they are short on shooters it's a really weird thing for a team with damian lillard and cj mccollum but they are legitimately short on shooters um you know with, with how myers leonard has kind of uh, sadly become Myers Leonard that's taken a spacing option away from them that they had in previous seasons they haven't been able to develop the young guys yet to be able to fill in that kind of a role Noah Vonley doesn't space the floor use of Nurkic doesn't space the floor so they don't really they are only found in their spacing by their star guards and I think that that creates a lot of their inability to kind of keep up with the rest of, of the league offensively
1: so you think that the the offensive struggles are more of a result of not having enough shooters rather than extra energy spent on defense?
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I think it, there's probably a cost there. There probably is a cost uh, benefit analysis because uh, fans tend to overlook this because they think that just like, well, you should just try on both ends of the floor. And yeah. I asked KD about this. I asked KD about this last year, actually. And Durant was in a scrum and, and Durant, said, you know, it took me years to figure out how to balance that, and it's still a balance. And I was talking to some of the Nuggets this year about Jamal Murray, who's really good defensively, and Paul Millsap actually said, he's like, I think he costs himself on offense because he invests so much effort defensively. So there's a give and take there, but Stotts' offense is so well designed that if they have shooters, it should be able to sustain itself. But from, you know, what I'm really seeing with them a lot of the time, they struggle um, in terms of being able just to knock down – down shots effectively outside of the big two in terms of their perimeter scoring.
2: What you're talking about here is the fact that Damon and CJ have basically all the gravity for the team. There's nobody right. else that, that's pulling anybody anywhere. I mean, Dave Yeager against the Kings last night um, said that, you know, the guy that actually changed the game for Portland was the guy that you mentioned there and Myers Leonard and his ability to, to pull somebody away that he didn't want to commit an extra defender anymore to Damon CJ on the pick and rolls. So it's drastic how much just having one additional guy that's even a threat on the floor opens it up for those guys. Um, but I think that exactly right is what you what you keyed on with what Durant said, and I think it's, it kind of permeates what, or not permeates, but um, goes back to um, what Damian Lillard said in the beginning of the season was that he's still trying to work his way through this balance. What do you think, though? That what is it that? From at least from your experience, that it takes for guys to recognize that, it's a strange way to put this, it's, it's, it's almost a delicate question, the level that it takes these guys to get to to be an effective defender. Because you've seen guys like Andre Iguodala and uh, Draymond and Tony Allen who've all said the same thing. Yes, defense is a talent, but more than anything, it's an effort situation. What is it that that sparks somebody like Damian Lillard, who's you know a, an all-star, to all of a sudden realize that, his, he needs to up his level on that end of the floor
0: so i'm an Alex guy and i believe in numbers and i believe in x's and o's and i do a lot of breakdowns i swear to god though this is a matter of spirit and it's weird for me to say that but like there's no really other way to explain it when you talk to, to coaches it's it's and players it's much the same thing you have to have a certain level of just the spirit of the team is imbibed with a feeling of we're going to commit on this end. Like this is something that we're going to take very seriously and and we're really going to invest ourselves on this. And when you see a guy really playing hard and getting those stops, it helps you. Like we see this year to year and it always baffles me that we talk about defense only in terms of personnel. Boston Celtics in 2016 had a top five defense and a bottom 10 offense the following season with almost the entire same cast. Except for Al Horford. But by and large, all of the same guys had a top five offense and for much of the season were ranked 22nd in defense. It just changes. The Denver Nuggets last year had the worst defense in the league for almost the entire season. From January 1st on, I think it was actually December 1st on is when they were, were ranked 30th on. But this year, same personnel, they add Paul Millsap, one big addition, yes, but not a guy that's like going to bark out orders. He's not Kevin Garnett. He's very much a lead-by-example guy. And the Nuggets are 18th. We see this year after year where teams are kind of microcosms and how they operate changes from season to season, even if they have the same personnel. So to me— with the Blazers, you just see, like, a different investment in their identity. They are they have a different identity than what they were before. They're not trying to just outscore teams. They're legitimately trying to find ways to get stopped, and that's how they believe that they're going to win these games. And when you have that kind of investment, it's going to carry over, as well as some tactical improvements, and also guys, you know, get older and they get better at defense.
2: See, you're killing these segues for me right now. <laughs> I love it because <laughs> the, the, the next thing I want to go into here is is easily the most discussed thing in Portland in the Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum time period. Are you a believer in these guys being able to take this team beyond a 500 or above 500 team with what they currently have? I mean, that, that could mean... Adding or moving a few pieces here or there, but you're essentially operating with Damien, CJ, and Yusuf Nurkic. So, here, here's okay. Trust me, you you, you can't uh, irritate people any more than I have here because I've I've pushed to trade <laughs> CJ about twenty seven times. So it's y- yeah, you're safe and here. I'm
0: with I'm with I'm with you on that. And here's why. I don't think you can trade Dame because he's too central to the, to the identity and the franchises like core identity. Like that team is, is Damian Lillard's the only way for you to improve, to get to the level that you want to get to is to bank by trading in the value of CJ McCollum. Um, if you ask me right now who the better player is, I don't have a clear-cut answer because CJ has made such a jump this season in ways that Dame is just never going to. Mm-hmm. To me when I've watched McCollum, he's more of a floor general, he's more in control, he's more of a leader, he's making better decisions, and these aren't things that Dame has necessarily struggled with, but Dame's identity is different because Dame is Dame. Like Dame is is always going to be the player that he is, which is, you know, Mr. clutch time phenomenal scorer a league guy like that's that's his identity and mccollum has kind of brought a lot of different things to the table and that's helped them i think tremendously um
1: wait can you go into a little bit more about some of the differences you see, see between the two of them so i see a lot started in preseason is when i started catching it because I, I you know
0: i've always i've liked cj but I was always kind of like, well, they're kind of redundant. like they're just the same mm-hmm. dude, right? It's like they're both they, they're both elite scores. they aren't really great defenders. And then I came into preseason and saw some of the the way that CJ was running the bench units and how he was he was coordinating guys and how he was really driven and, and kind of bringing those guys up and, and leading them and talking in timeouts and those kind of things. Again, I want to be very clear. Not, I'm not saying these are not things Dame does because Dame does all this <laughs> stuff too at times. It's mm-hmm. a di- it's just it's the same but different, and that really I think brings a little bit more. The, I guess the best way to put it is, I see a little bit more of Mike Conley in say CJ McCollum this year than I've seen, and I'm never going to see a lot of, of Mike Conley in Damian Lillard, which is okay because I'm never going to see Damian Lillard and Mike Mike Conley. That's, you know, Mike Conley is never going to have those kind of nights that Dame can have. Um, and that leadership factor and that ability to kind of run the floor and to, to be the kind of floor general that I've seen CJ be is really impressive to me. Um, and again, not that, that Dame doesn't do these things. I think Dame's an incredible leader. Uh, just that CJ's doing it in a different kind of mechanism. And those subtle differences make, to me, CJ a lot more valuable than it was last year when I was just kind of like, all right, well, they have Dame. And then they have, like, B-level Dame. And I don't know where that gets you. And so now the question is, does Dame plus this new version of CJ, along with a good cast, does that bring you further than trading CJ for like a whole cadre of different weapons to augment what's, what Dame does? And that's that I think is is an interesting question. And it's really tough. This is like it's a fascinating question, right? Of like whether or not whether or not CJ makes like Dame and CJ play well together. The question to me is. Do they make each other better in a in a way that if you put the right pieces around them, they can really be like a three seed? And that is a tougher question for me to answer, and it's not clear cut. Like I can't go out there and just be like, well, they should just clearly do this. That's not how it is. It's, it's this really complicated thing because if you miss – if you trade CJ and you miss on what you get in return – you have messed up in an incredible way that is going to cost a lot of people their jobs.
1: That's one of the things that worries me the most because you never get value for value anymore. It seems, you know, it's like we, they, the trailblazers have something of such high value in CJ, but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily the ones coming in, uh, in the best position because things just never even out. I mean, how many times it seems so rare that a trade goes down and we all go, huh, both sides ended up pretty good on that one. It seems like it's always, you know, feels like one side or the other gets more value than the other one based on how badly they needed to actually make the move.
0: Yeah. The safe answer is to not trade CJ. That's like the safe answer. Um, Mm -hmm. There are moves that you could conceivably make, but a lot of it depends on like, you'd have to catch a desperate team with a star player in position to be able to do what you need to do. Like you'd have to catch lightning in a bottle. And even then, like the public perception is going to be that you either lost or it's debatable that you lost because you traded CJ McCollum. Um, The easy answer is to keep those two guys together. Uh, However, the risk there is far worse, which is the risk is that you run into the Clippers phenomenon where Mm -hmm you have this combination and you never trade them because they're too good to trade. And then two years, three years down the line, you're just like, this just isn't working. You're not going anywhere. Cause that's the question that that I have heard from everybody around the league. And even like we talked about the national media, that's a, that's a narrative with them as well, which is like, where is this team going? Like, Mm -hmm. even if they get it together, like they're nine and seven, even if they get it together and they have a really good season, what's a really good season for this team. Like a really good season for the Denver Nuggets is that they make the playoffs. That's all they got to do because they missed out last year because Jesus of buried their ass. <laughs> but like But so if they make the playoffs, it's great. If they make the 6th seed, it's phenomenal. But with the Blazers, they've made the playoffs two years in a row. If they sneak into that 8th seed again and get worked by the Warriors, where are you going? What are you doing? Who are you?
2: And like, even what, what's what's your identity? The thing is, even if they push hard and they make somehow let, let, let's say they make that that run that they've made every winter for the past two years and they play well leading up to it. And let's say that they hit 50 to 51 wins and get the fifth seed five through 12 in the Western conference is going to be separated by what four games, five games. Yeah. You're not getting home court. (laughs) You're, you're, You're not getting a favorable matchup and you're not getting anything as far as building towards the future. Let's say that you
0: went that you actually given above that. Let's say that uh, Minnesota, Oklahoma City both underperform relative to expectations, and the Blazers are the one team that steps up and fills that gap. And now all of a sudden, it's like the Blazers got the four seed and they won you know fifty three games and look like, what a phenomenal season. Um, imagine what happens if that team gets the four seed or and then loses to the five, or what if they get the three seed? And they lose to the six like that's way more devastating. Um, and I think everyone would agree that if this Portland team is currently constructed, made the three seed, it would be hard to believe in them as an absolute lock to advance. Like that would be hard to believe in. It would be like mm-hmm. that. It would be like that Knicks that Knicks team where they won 54 games. And yeah, it was like they're not actually like that. They're not that It's not really good. a 54 win team.
1: Right, and then the so from are... an outside perspective, I'm curious what from outside perspective, I'm curious what you think would be a success for the Blazers this year. Uh,
0: I would say that if you get the seven or six seed, and you either make a run or knock off a two or three, that's like a huge step up. Now, I actually think if you make the five seed, that's actually a pretty decent outcome. Like if you if you make the five seed and you have a tough seven game series and you get knocked out, like if it's kind of like. Um, like let's say that Chris Paul and Blake Griffin don't get in get don't get injured last year, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like uh, not last year, but the year before. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the Blazers, the the Clippers had looked pretty good before. Literally, all of their star talent got hurt for the remainder of the series. Yeah. Um, let's say that that se- that series had gone, but let's say the Blazers had kind of come back and they fought and they they won a couple of games. They pushed them to seven, but they lost. Right. That's a decent outcome. You could feel pretty good about that one. It's like, look, we won more games than last year. We showed real promise. We know that Nurkic is, is a part of the future. We think we can win with this core. We're like one piece away. You've really kind of, I think, made some momentum. But even then, even then, you're really stuck in a bad position. Because imagine being there and being like, we're one
2: piece away. Well, how are you getting that one piece? Because you're paying Nurkic. That's the question I was just going to ask you. You've got Dame. You've got CJ. Those guys are wrapped up under contract. Nurkic is going to command probably what? Let's just say Nurkic doesn't get max money because centers don't get max money unless your name's Embiid or Anthony Davis or DeMarcus Cousins. So Nurkic gets $20 million. The, the only way that they're going to be able to do anything is to make a trade. Okay, is there enough underneath Dame, CJ, Nurkic to put any of those to, together and make a move that, that is – that makes sense from day one. So, Dan, you're signing and keeping Nurkic in this scenario, is yeah, that correct? So that, that gives you the flexibility because he's a restricted free agent, so you can come back and get him. So if, if you wanted to work some things out in this, okay. this summer, it's giving you that. But the goal this, would be to keep him. Yes, yeah, so you're, you're keeping Nurkic, you're keeping Dame, keeping CJ. This is this is to the satisfy the, the, the people that, that really want to see the Dame CJ Nurkic trio come together and have reinforcements brought in. Is there anything underneath those guys that you see that or a move could be made, Matt, that would bolster this team enough to get them up up another rung on the ladder? Well, when you trade MVP Shabazz
0: Napier, (laughs) that should probably help you guys. Um, I think I think the the issue the short answer is no Um, because And if you and if you do, it's really risky. And the reason is, like, the only way you're doing that is if you're able to deal multiple draft picks along with filler contract. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way for you to be able to pull that off. Um, and then you get really risky because we've seen a lot of teams that mortgage that young talent. And then they don't have enough supporting core to back up the star power, right? Like, that's one thing. We see this a lot where, you know, teams get those those all of the, the top front end talent and then it's like, well, they don't have anybody coming up behind them. That's why golden state's whole thing is so is not only so good, but so fortunate is like, they also managed to bring up young guys behind them without ever having to deal a pick to acquire any of their guys. Um, that's like a big part of, of what puts their formula together. Like, I, I don't think that you can look at uh again or Von or, Uh, you know, Alfred Gamino like is what he is or content or like none none of these guys, you don't don't look at any of those guys like making a huge leap and then being able to cash them in for the kind of star upgrade that you would need to kind of bridge the gap between the two guards and then Nurkic. And the other thing is like, um, this is also kind of an unknown because a lot of this Nurkic depends. This is like where the Nurkic question comes in is like, Nurkic can't just be what he's been this year, which is like, oh, he's had some good games and helped them sometimes. Like use of Nurkic has to get back to last year when it was, oh wow. Use of Nurkic is like rampaging all over the city and just (laughs) tearing everyone apart. Like that's the only way that this formula works is if Nurkic gets back to being absolutely city leveling. But even then you still have to be able to acquire that other guy. And then you got to manage the salary ramifications. That's, and so the answer is I don't think that there is a possibility, which, again, leads me back to kind of your position, which is like probably trading Dan, uh, CJ is the only way to get that move that reconfigures the team and makes them better.
2: Okay. You've, you've actually touched on something here. I want to go off, off, off track here for a second because you wrote about him a little bit uh, heading into the season. That's Yusuf Nurkic. And his ability or inability to finish on cuts, finish inside, um, was kind of overlooked or glossed over during NERC fever last year. Um, Portland at the beginning of this season, they straight posted him a ton to start the year, and it didn't work. Um, and, and they dropped a few games, I think, because of it. They adjusted and went to big-time pick-and-roll. Basically, he's getting three, four ups a game. Every other Every other possession that he's touching the ball, he's either operating out of the high post as a facilitator or he's diving whether it's a side pick and roll, top pick and roll. Um, But he's catching and going on the move. Is that the way that he's going to be the most effective or do you have to be able to utilize him in a a bunch of different fronts? Basically, is is $20 million too much to pay for a guy who offensively should be diversified but isn't showing up across the board? All
0: right, so this is, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I know I it was a, a scatterbrained
2: for... country uh, question. I got no, no,
0: you're no, you're, you're no, you're fine. It's just it's tough for me because a lot of it is uh, you have to be able to separate yourself and like writers have biases. It's going to happen, and you work really hard to remove those biases from you. Um, I covered use of in Denver, mm-hmm. so I have seen the highs and the oh oh so lows of what he brings to the table, both on court and an off court. Now last year when Nurkic fever was going on, he showcased a willingness to pass that was well beyond anything that they saw in Denver. And that's crucial for him is he has to be, especially in how Stotz runs the offense is he has to be able to provide that kind of an impact. And we haven't seen that enough this year. Cause it really looks like he's trying to make good on himself and forcing up a lot of stuff. Like, you mentioned the post-ups he's 21 of 57 in post-up situations by synergy Mm -hmm. sports. He's shooting 37% in the post.
2: Yeah. It hasn't been good at all.
1: Not great, Bob,
2: Um, (laughs) but then that's after
1: some improvement, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. His first couple of games was a train wreck.
0: But then here's like the really crazy one in finishing pick and roll plays. He's only shooting 32 of 59, which is 36 percentile league wide. Like it's over 50% of the, he's shooting 54%, but compared to how he should finish on those plays, it's actually relatively low. And then he's got a 12.7% turnover rate, which is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Um, The key that synergy misses in this situation is how often he takes that short roll and then passes to the corner. Yeah, synergy still has not figured out how to access that yet. Second Spectrum has that data, but has not made it available to the public. That's a really crucial stat for evaluating use of Nurkic. See, folks, it's not just me. Is.
2: It's not just me harping on the, the, the uh, or the lack of availability of Second Spectrum data. There you go. There's somebody else. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so like, but
1: to be but, uh, to be fair, there's a lot of data available, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> There is a lot. I mean, the of data one have, you want is not a, the, the 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 data I want is you know the, there's plenty that we can tell some stories with. I, I think, but uh, to
0: Dan's point, the reason why I share his frustration is I want to be able to tell people data that backs up what they're watching or what I'm watching or what they need to know. And with Synergy data, because so much of it, is, and I use it a lot and love Synergy, but because so much of it is not either quantified or available, it's hard for me to be able to illustrate things like look. When Yusuf, when Yusuf rolls, he's actually not that effective. But when Yusuf rolls and passes, he's really effective. And I don't even know if that's true because I don't have access to the data. Like the stuff is actually important because, it, because it, Nurkish doesn't have to actually be great scoring if he's making the team better with his threat. I wrote about this with Marcus Smart this week. It's more about what the defense is afraid of you for than what you actually do. Now at the same time, like I do think that Nurkic gets caught up like trying to score too much and is really worried about his numbers and all of these things are problematic. And like, look, he's eight of twenty on offensive rebound attempts this season. Like, that's unacceptable for a dude that big. Like that, there's just no reason for him to be eight of twenty on putback attempts. That's, that's, that's Zach
2: Randolph in his fourteenth year type stuff. That's bad. <laughs> um,
0: and he doesn't really space the floor. So there's all these kind of things that that bring it to the table of of how the the Blazers can use him. I think that he needs to be versatile. I think that he's got to be. But the biggest thing for him is he really, what he needs to be is what we just talked about, which is his size needs to present a threat that creates open opportunities for his teammates. That is the best way to make use of him and Stotts' system and to present him as a threat. Because look at what we're saying with Joel Embiid, where, okay, you're going to single cover me, then I'm going to destroy you. If you're going to single cover me in the post, I'm going to tear the rims off if you're going to single cover me. Oh, you're bringing the double? Oh, I'm going to find Ben Simmons on back cuts every time. I'm just going to tear you to pieces with the passing once you adjust. In the NBA today, it's not about what you can do one-on-one. It's about what you can do one-on-one to force the help and then how you can punish that help for coming.
1: Ooh, I like the sound of that. I have one follow-up question on Nurkic, and that is, have you seen enough of the... Blazer games this year to have any opinions on which players complement him best. Maybe some of more the role players like Aminu or Vonley. I'm of the opinion that he and Vonley play really well together. And I'm not quite sure if Vonley, I, I almost to almost to the point that I think Vonley makes Nurkic better more so than Nurkic making Vonley better. Do you have any observations
0: uh, so, this year, I don't have enough work done to be able to say conclusively. I could say, like, what I've noticed. Um, mm-hmm. I've noticed, like, <laughs> he, he, David, TJ, seemed pretty good. Like, that's just when you, when you put a guy that size um, rolling with a guard, like one of those two, as good as they are both scoring and passing, and the other one spotting up, that's a really useful combination um, just instinctively. Like, I, I was, who was I was breaking down? Um, oh, I was looking at, uh, I was looking at, I think, the Cavs? No, it was somebody else. Um, But I was noticing that they they just, like, tore them to pieces. Oh, it was OKC. I noticed that I was doing a breakdown on OKC, and I was just like, man, like, OKC couldn't do a thing with those two rolling with the other one in the weak side corner. Like, not a thing to be done uh, with that combination. And so, like, that's, like, really obvious and pointed. I don't have enough done to be able to say conclusively. I will tell you, based off of last year, That was what caught me is when I was like, all right, well, let's look at like what kind of happens when different combinations were on the floor. And I noticed that, you know, everyone was like, well, look at the defense for Portland with uh, Nurkic on and with Nurkic off. And I was like, "Okay, well, that's cool. And I was like, so he makes everybody better. And so I started going down the combos. And what was striking was like his defensive rating went to absolute garbage when Noah was not on the court. Mm -hmm. That was that was really shocking to me to see how good. Noah Vonley who I by the way have caped for for oh so long um, for that to have had such an impact on what, he, on what he was doing last year and I wouldn't be surprised if that combination is the same which is what makes the whole thing with Vonley so really interesting is like Vonley's a really interesting player to kind of categorize and quantify and and figure out because when he looks bad he looks so unbelievably terrible and when he helps guys you're like man he, he did a lot of things that were beneficial um so there's all these kind of ways, and like uh, here's a good example. So this season, with Noah Vonleh on the court, using Nurkic has a 92.3 defensive rating. When Noah Vonley is on the bench, that that goes up by seven points per hundred possessions. It goes way way up when Vonley's off the floor. Now 99.7 is still under 100. That's excellent defense, no matter what. It doesn't go from it doesn't go from great to garbage. Nurkic goes from great to pretty good. Um, and so that's, that's key, but it does show you kind of the effect that I think Vonley still has, but the issue there is how do you score effectively with two non-shooters on the floor in today's NBA?
2: Yeah. I, I want to believe that they can find a way to make this thing work to get to that point kind of what we were talking about and see if they can, they can push it to another level, but you hit on all the keys. There is finding the right pieces to plug in alongside these three guys, You've got guys like Aminu and Harkless, uh, Swanigan, Connaughton, Lehman, whoever you want to put out there, but they're, they're these players that are siloed. that They have a skill set, but they only complement the, – the role players only complement one, maybe two guys on the floor at the same time. Like it is, Evan Turner is a nice player, and, and while I've beat him up – or not him, but the, the signing up over the, the price of it, his salary going forward, he still offers a lot of things. He, he's – Easily one of the best post-up wings in the league, which is it's 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 yep. a it's a lost art um, and not something that's huge to have, but it's it's a tendency breaker. It's something where you can take advantage of mismatches, like you talked about, and force that that help defender to come over and then create off that. That's that's exactly what Evan Turner d- is designed for. Uh, he he can work that mismatch all day long. However, but if you you put him out there with a bunch of non-shooters, how much of that are you really utilizing and exposing on the de- defensively? So that's kind of where I, I kind of go to when I talk about Portland and where their, their ceiling is, so to speak, kind of going forward. But it also kind of leads me to where we wanted to take this next was the Northwest division as a whole, when all these moves are made, you know, OKC brings in uh, PG and Mellow Denver, like you said, brought in Millsap um, Utah, obviously, loses Gordon Hayward and they've, they've got things changing around um, Minnesota bringing in Jimmy Butler, Jeff Teague and, Rubio obviously heading to Utah. This division was easily looked at as murderer's row coming into this season. Now we're kind of looking at it, and I think Minnesota's probably playing better faster than a lot of people thought while some other teams are kind of falling back in the pack. What's, what, what's been both your view, obviously being in a, a, a Denver guy or, or, or around Denver a ton um, of Denver as well as the Northwest division as a whole?
0: I think it's still really tough because of the level of talent. And I think that the big thing is we got a bunch of teams that are still figuring themselves out. Um Utah's bad. Like one of these teams that we knew that was going to be in that pack with um, it was Portland and Denver and Memphis and new Orleans uh, and Utah and all of those teams. We and the Clippers, we knew that they weren't all going to be good. Everybody was like, well, they should all be good. Well, that's not how it works. like, there's always teams that fall off and just, Hey, it just didn't come together for you. And you had injuries. And with the Clippers in Utah, we're seeing that it didn't come together for them and they have injuries. And so Utah, I had questions about how they were going to score coming in and losing Rudy Gobert, They might wind up digging a hole that they're not going to be able to get out of. I, I just do. I don't believe in the jazz. The other four teams, I think are going to be pretty good. I actually, it's funny. Um, so if we look at the, at the other four, the, the, in the standings it's minnesota denver portland oklahoma city those four teams are separated by two and a half games i have the most confidence in the worst team of that group which is oklahoma city and i have the least confidence in minnesota which is the best of that group right now (laughs) um
1: sounds about right
0: (laughs) minnesota you kind of saw it tonight in the loss of the pistons where they fell apart minnesota's offense is very predictable once you are able to wrangle it if you let it run wild, it absolutely just it's it it is like a steer, and it will absolutely buck you and then trample you. But if you get the reins on and you stay up on top of it, you can handle it, and eventually, it's going to wear out of energy, and you're gonna you're gonna win the battle over the long term with how it's designed. With you throw in how they're bad, their defense is that's a real issue. Um, with Denver and Portland, I think you're seeing two teams whose identities are changing and they're trying to find the balance between what they're capable of offensively and what they're capable of defensively. And they're still trying to figure that out. And every night it seems like a little bit different where like Denver's offense will look absolutely incendiary one night. And then the next night it will look positively pedestrian like it did versus Portland and Portland. Some nights looks like this absolute world beater, where they're locked in on defense and they got Dame and CJ and yes. And then some nights it's like, look, this team just doesn't have enough weapons. Like they've got CJ and Dame, but other than that, like they just don't have enough weaponry. And so they're, I think going to be battling all season long to try and figure it out. Um, Oklahoma City. I have absolutely zero worries about. I did a deep dive on their their clutch time breakdowns, which is the only reason they have the record of seven and eight that they do. They have like two bad losses, and the rest of it is just a bunch of they they had crappy third quarters and were unable to close in the clutch, and they're still figuring those options out. But their overall performance is crystal clear, way too good for them to be in trouble. They're going to be fine. Uh, it, the question is going to be about. Denver, Portland, and Minnesota, and how those three teams find a balance between offense and defense this season.
2: Yeah. Looking at it going in, I think a lot of people, just because it's Minnesota, wanted to question Minnesota. I mean, this is a franchise that hasn't really been relevant in, what, 12 years? Is it, is it twelve years since they made the playoffs? Ten years? Eleven years? Something, like, something along those lines. It's, it's thirteen. 13? Okay, thirteen. Okay. So yeah, yeah thirteen. <laughs> so it's it's been a, it's been a hot minute. So everybody's just gonna kind of sit and wait on that one. Um, Denver is just kind of this weird enigma, right? I mean, they're they're playing the Lakers right now, and I think the last check when it popped up on the ticker, they were down twenty something to the Lakers. So I mean, I, I I can't wrap my head around that because this is a team that the other night scored what one hundred and forty plus points.
0: And yeah, it hey. turns out the LA nightlife LA nightlife is undefeated. <laughs> I'm telling look it, 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 it's a I'm telling you I've been watching this league long enough I have seen way too many oh it's a Sunday night game in LA. Wow, the opposing team just looks like they came out really flat. That's <laughs> odd. It's almost like they had fun in LA on a Saturday night. Um LA's also here's the thing with LA, like LA night by night can look pretty decent. Like they they play they're playing really well in this game. They're they're better on defense this season. Denver uh, had Michael Malone tossed and Nikola Jokic ejected, and Paul Millsap is hurt. So like a lot has gone wrong for Denver in a very short <laughs> amount of time in this game. Um, this seems more like a game that they, they would typically have
2: against Portland. But yeah, that's, that's exactly uh, what I was uh, saying. This seems like the Denver Portland matchup that we've had for the past like yeah. five years. Yes,
0: yeah, so they're they're like they like they're they're going to pieces and they're having a bad night, but. Um, with Denver overall, I think is, is going to be pretty, is going to be pretty decent. Um, I just think that it's going to be really interesting where I think Denver's lows are going to be lower than Portland's. The question is going to be about consistency and how, what their again, I get back to like what their win profiles look like. Uh, and this game being kind of an exception, Denver has been good this, this season so far at beating teams that it should. Uh, and that's something that Portland I think has struggled with a little bit with, uh, kind of how they've gone, where like the loss to the Kings, the loss to the Nets, um, the Raptors' loss was fine. Like the Bucks' loss was okay, but like they they've the struggled loss, a little the bit. The
2: Clippers' loss, yeah, <laughs>
0: right. So they they've lost they've lost some games where. Uh, they've lost the teams that are wor- that are worse than them, and that- those are the ones that you have to avoid. Like if you're going to make the playoffs in the West, I keep talking about this. It doesn't matter how you do against the Warriors. It doesn't matter how you do against the Spurs. It doesn't matter how you do against Houston or the Thunder. What matters is are you going to beat up on those East teams? Are you going to beat up on the teams that are at your level? Like if you could, w- if you can win. Half of the games against teams that are at your level and beat the teams that are worse than you, you will make the playoffs in the West. That's what the formula comes down to, because teams are good enough. But you have to put together that kind of profile. It can't be, you know, oh, you get a huge win versus Golden State, or you knock off Houston, but then you're losing to, to Brooklyn. Those are the losses that really hurt you in the Western Conference.
2: So basically, if I'm reading this right, you're, you're pretty comfortable in saying four out of these five teams, Utah obviously being the odd one out, are pretty safe bets to make the playoffs this year?
0: Nope, no, nope. because like, uh, there's there's so much stuff but, because the volatility. And,
1: uh, you're and, saying it's a, the battles going to be between those four in this division? Uh, Is that? I
0: think <laughs> I'm trying think to paint him down. <laughs> so here, here here's here's what I think. Okay, um, right now at, at between the five spot. And the ninth spot, you got Denver, Portland, New Orleans, Memphis, OKC. I'm willing to go ahead and say that the Lakers are out of it. We'll see what happens with the Clippers. They could completely unravel and Doc could be fired and they could be gone. I think Utah's out. Um, I think Oklahoma City's definitely in. So now you're talking about Denver, Portland, New Orleans, Memphis fighting over three spots. And I'm not ready to bury New Orleans. I'm not ready to bury Memphis. I'm not ready to bury Portland. I'm not ready to bury to bury Denver. I think that those teams are in Minnesota is like an interesting one because I think I'm still trying to figure them out. I do not have a lock on Minnesota because there's like what we thought they were going to be coming in and there's what they should be. And there's what I see when I watch them. And there's like a whole lot of, Oh, I don't know. This looks like there's, there's some smoke and mirrors going on with this record right now. Um, so I haven't figured out Minnesota just yet.
2: All right. So we're talking about the future here and I, I was going to ask you about this, but. Tara won't let me talk about rookies anymore. So she's going to have to ask you this question.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Dan. Yeah. When, you know, Portland got two rookies, they came into the draft with three draft picks. They walked away with two draft picks. Just curious about what your opinions are on the Zach Collins and Caleb Swanigan acquisitions and how you think it's going for the two of them this season from what you've seen so far.
0: I'm really sad that Zach Collins doesn't get to play at all. I really like Zach Collins, and I, I'd like to see like what he actually looks like. I'm I'm sad that Zach Collins is not in the rotation at all. That's a tell me more
1: me. about what what you excite what got you uh, excited about him for the Trailblazers.
0: He's a spacing five. Like he, with Myers' complete meltdown, you need that. Like you need a guy that can spread the floor a little bit. And to me, Collins is a guy that can present that threat. I liked him a lot as a prospect. So I'm still like really high on, on where he's at. Um, I think that he's going to be, be, I think he's going to be good. Um,
1: yeah. For realistic expectations. When do you think he should start seeing the floor? Like, do you think it's a, he should go ahead and start getting minutes right away, get minutes judiciously in garbage time, or like, let's just hold off and, You know, be be really careful about putting him in too soon because he is really young and he has a lot of uh, building and growing that he still needs to do
0: yeah I think it's I think it's totally fine to hold him like you can have him out an entire year and people will be like well he's just not a player and then he could be like oh no he spent the year and he he added to his body and he he learned how to be an NBA player and now he's really good like that happens a lot and we just don't need to overreact um I don't think that his lack of playing time is any sort of indication of where his career is going to be I just think that that the blazers are have a, are in a tough position there and they need to be able to play the guys like they have a lot of veteran bigs. Like they just got a lot of guys that they could play at those spots. So um, to me, I, I'm not worried about it at all. I don't even necessarily think that he needs to be on the court this season because you know, like who who's, who are you, who are you giving his minutes to? Mm-hmm. Like that's the real question, right? Is like, who who are you going to, going to trade off in the rotation for that? And it's, and you could say, well, his development is more important than some random big, but yeah, but at the same time, the only way you're going to increase those guys' trade value is to get them minutes. And two, rookies make mistakes. And this is a team that's trying to win every night. And that gets complicated. And so I, I trust Stotts in this regard that I, I think he's going to be a good NBA player, but I'm not worried. Uh, I'm also not like in a situation where I'm, like he needs to play more now.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Caleb Swanigan has seen the floor more often than Zach Collins. He even got, I think, three starts yep. so far this year. What are your thoughts on Swanigan this year?
0: Um, I, I like the effort that I've seen from him. Like, there's not much there in terms of the production, right? Like, there's not like a whole lot to to talk about in terms of what he's bringing to the to the uh, to the floor in terms of of production. Uh, that hasn't been there, but that's okay. I, I actually I like kind of I like his size and versatility. I, th- I think that what he brings is actually is actually pretty good. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what he's going to be in the NBA, but I like what I've seen from him so far.
1: Where are you kind of learning, leaning? I'm sorry. What are you? Where are you leaning on where he might be in the NBA? Hmm. Um, I guess sort of ceiling for both of these guys. Um, you know, where do you where do you see them potentially reaching?
0: I'd love to tell you. I really don't know yet. Like that's mm-hmm. the thing is, is that I don't because uh, the draft guys will would would want to come out and be like, "Well, you can think he could be this," and uh-huh. I just am a guy. I'm a guy that goes like, "Look, until you prove it in the league, I don't believe that I can." Like I, I, I like you. I can see guys as prospects and make comparisons, but mm-hmm. it's hard for me to kind of kind of project. Um, I like Swanigan's uh, kind of how. I like it if he's able to, to expand what he's capable of. I like his versatility a lot in the modern NBA because I like his size and I like what he brings to the table, but he's going to have to improve in like a whole lot of areas. And that's why it's kind of surprising. I think that he's the one that's maybe getting more, more minutes than, than, uh, than Collins is from that perspective.
1: Dan, do you, I, I will lift my rookie discussion uh, ban from you if you'd like to weigh in on any of these things because I know you were probably sitting on your hands with your tongue, with biting your tongue. I, was,
2: I wasn't wasn't biting my tongue, I was biting my lip just so just, there was no, no yelps or screams or anything along those lines. It's, it's kind of funny, Matt and I, obviously, for anybody who's... Listen for the past couple months. Differ drastically on on, on Collins. Um, <laughs> my my, but we do we we both are in agreement on how to develop him. That, that's that's unquestioned I like how you worked that one in there for me I, I didn't have to I didn't have to get to that point um, so,
0: so, I'm, so, I'm, so I'm curious so what's uh, wh- give me the take what's I, the take on
2: I, I'm not a hot takey guy but I, when I've watched him on the floor he's he's clearly a uh, he's Portland's Bruno he, he's two years away from being two years away um, he he's very lost when he's on the floor um, a lot of that could be obviously being a You know, a 19-year-old kid in the NBA, going from Gonzaga to the pros, Um, the big man position. Obviously, taking quite a few years usually to pick up, unless you're an elite-level prospect Um, that's you know ready to go from day one. And the other thing is the the physical tools that, or physical, the physique. (laughs) It really is what it comes down to. Um, I I mean, I, I watched him get pushed off the block last night by Malachi Richardson. That's problematic. That I means that's, that's not great. Yeah, that's 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 an issue. Like a six foot six, one hundred and ninety five pound wing should not push a seven footer off the block when he's ten feet from the rim. That that just that shouldn't be a thing. Um, so that that gives me pause. I I am not by any means tossing the kid out, saying he's gonna be trash, he's gonna be garbage, he's never gonna figure it out. But I just not ready yet. Yeah, I, I when the folks are saying let's toss him out there and see what we got in him, I think it's a bad idea to put a guy out there who's clearly not ready um and and never never
0: never never, never put a guy that's not ready on the floor with a veteran team because it's not necessarily what it does to his confidence it's what it does to the other players confidence in him they won't trust him at all going forward exactly like
1: very interesting perspective and not thought about it from that point of view
0: Put him on the court when when he's ready to be a guy that they can trust and believe in. Because otherwise, they're gonna otherwise when, once teammates lose their confidence in you, it's very difficult to get it back. It becomes extremely difficult to recover from.
2: That's why I said, let him put in all work of the work at practice. Let him show the let you know the post practice one on one games. With, with the other bigs, you know, that kind of stuff. Let them feel him out. Let him earn it. Let him work through it. And if he doesn't get on the floor and get anything more than garbage minutes between now and February, that's fine. In fact, I'd rather have it that way if he's not going to be ready. And then once he gets a kind of feel for travel, he gets a feel for the practice routine. He understands what NBA game plans look like when you're going from game plan to game plan every few days as opposed to, you know, every, once a week. I think that's the big change that a lot of people don't realize. That coming from college, you've got a five, six, sometimes seven days between a game. Where in the NBA, you're playing back-to-backs. Game plans change drastically from opponent to opponent. Um, how you're going to attack uh, uh, individual matchups, um, knowing where to force somebody. You know, having all that stuff. I mean, th- that's that part of the learning process that takes years to get through. Uh, beyond the the physical stuff that is required of somebody who's going to play that position. It, it, while the NBA is less physical than it used to be, it's still not, you know, it, it's not powder puff out there. You, you still need to be a, a, a physical and, you know, I don't want to say a bruiser, but you, you need to be willing and able to, to bang. Um, and uh, Collins has shown, at least to me right now, he's not ready to do that.
1: So Matt, the interesting thing though, is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, is that Dan does believe that Swanigan is ready for this. So what do you think about that? Because you were wondering what his take was on, on Swanigan as well, I think.
0: Uh, I think that he's going to primarily be a defensive kind of presence, and I think that that's really complicated when you – I think most rookies that apparently are not coached by Brad Stevens, most rookies <laughs> are really bad defensively. Um, most young guys are bad defensively, and I think that that's that's really problematic. And even the, the some of the spots that I've seen him in, he's made some key mistakes. That I was like, oh, that's that's a rookie thing. Um, so you gotta gotta kind of figure out that stuff, I think, first. Um, but maybe not. Maybe it's, that's that's uh, the way it goes. And I, I'm also, you know, I don't know with what their rotation looks like. I don't know what rotation. Um, I'll ask you. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs>
1: ask, I, well, we don't I'll either. <laughs>
0: ask, I, I'll ask both of you, like what. What does Swanigan bring to the table that Davis, Vonley, Aminu at all do not bring? What does he bring that's different?
2: For me, for, for, at least for me, because I'll just kind of carry off this last point, is that Swanigan is or has the potential to be kind of the amalgam of all those guys. He's supposed to be able to hit the shot. He's supposed to be able to play from the post. He's supposed to be able to create. He's supposed to rebound. He's supposed to play with energy. Now, he's shown the ability to create. Um, in a few different instances that were kind of eye-opening. His first start, he comes out, and Portland, instead of going pick and roll, they they bring both um, Nurkic and Swanigan up to the high post. And they go dribble handoff on both sides. Um, They get the action moving. And and some of the cleanest offense that I'd seen Portland run all year. And that was because of what Swanigan's presence and skill set allows him to do. We saw some of that before. And I I hate translating summer league to, to the NBA, but you could If anybody who watched the summer league knew that he was a willing and able and capable passer from the high post. So incorporating that ability, which we haven't seen from Vonley or Davis or anybody else really that's going to, Aminu or Harkless or anybody else is going to plug into that position, they took advantage of that right away. Now, the energy is certainly there. Him and Ed Davis are an absolute force and nightmare to deal with on both sides of the floor on rebounds. I mean, they're fighting each other sometimes. So I think that part is something that's clearly evident um he's got great footwork he's shown a nice set shot but we haven't seen it materialize and i think that's you you said you've planted the flag for vaughn lane i was a huge fan of vaughn coming out of indiana and uh, i was always hoping and dreaming that you know when that move got made and they brought him to portland that he could step out and hit a 15 footer and eventually take it to the corner three and now i'm at the point where i'm like okay Swanigan showed he could do that in college can he show he can do that in the nba and I think that's the hope, at least for Swanigan, is that you've got these guys that we, I, we talked about earlier where guys are siloed. They have one, two, maybe three skills they bring that are, are, are no-nonsense NBA skills. Swanigan, I think, is a guy that looks like, hey, potentially he could do these things. Now, he can do A, B, and C already, but we think he can do more. And I think that those are the questions that are getting asked, and that's why he's getting the floor time. That and the fact that physically and mentally, while he's making mistakes mentally, he's not making... As many mistakes. Uh, the, the veterans on the team have all said he acts like and, and and moves around like he's been in the league two or three years already. And the other thing, obviously, is the, is the physical aspect of it. That's... You could take one look at him and realize that physically he's ready to play. All oh, this... And, 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 and hey...
1: They,
0: I, I was just, sorry, I was just going to make a joke and say that... Um, and, hey, maybe, unlike Yusef Nurkic, he'll actually sit and hold the screen versus slipping every time. <laughs>
1: Well, it's an interesting point because I was going to add that one of the, the things that I believe that Swanigan brings are more intangible. So, you know, for somebody who claims, you know, to call, you call yourself an analytics guy, so you might not like my answer. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of intangibles that come into the game with Swanigan. One of them is that he's a guy who's clearly you know, gunning for the starting position. I mean, he came in and he's like, I'm going to earn my, you know, I'm going to earn minutes and I'm going to earn that starting position. And he has acted like that because every time he makes a mistake, it's rare that he makes it again, or at least, you know, in a similar way. And I think he pushes other guys and I think he makes other guys, you know, keep their eye behind him because they know that he's uh, coming for him. He's also, uh, something that the Blazers struggle with a lot last year that towards the end of the year, we would all be tearing our hair out at the end of games, um, watching everybody hesitate with the ball. And the first time Swanigan stepped on a court, he got the ball and without hesitation, he just let it fly. And everyone was like, mm. Oh my gosh, that's what it looks like when you have somebody who shoots without hesitation beyond Damon CJ. Mm. So, he brings a couple of these sort of uplifting things that I don't know that you can necessarily measure. He reminds me a lot of Vonley again, and I think that he plays well alongside people. And he's often in that same spot where Vonley is when Vonley is in, which is, you know, right under the basket to get either that little handoff from Nurkic or to get, uh, you know, to jump in and get a rebound or a tip back. So those, those are some of the things that I think he brings into the lineup.
0: Hey, energy things are important. I definitely like, I believe in intangible stuff. I think that there's ways that the data comes sometimes shows that stuff more than we can give it credit for. But I definitely believe, I, I see what you're saying with the energy. I have noticed that. And, but I'm also like always skeptical because I'm like, he has to do that. Otherwise he's not going to play. Like, that's like the reality with young guys. It's like, if you come in and you're just like, ah, eh, whatever, unless you're Lonzo Ball, like you're doomed.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's guys like True we too, we've, but- we've seen in the past, like Thomas Robinson, who had all the energy in the world, but. You know, outside of a spin move and a putback, what was he bringing to a team tangibly? I mean, or tangibly. So, that's. I think that's the fear for Blazers fans is that um, he turns into something like that. But I think that there's a lot more optimism around him based on what his skill set has looked like at least thus far.
1: Well, and the thing that impresses me is just the way you he, you can see him continually learning. He's like that Terminator, you know, that just like gets better and better every time. And like from starting at Summer League, you would see him every time out with his, you know, his whole body turned and his whole attention focused on whatever the coach was saying. And I've just never seen anybody that constantly attentive to what was going on and then immediately turn around and apply it. So I I, I enjoy watching him play because you just, you always know that every time he comes out, he's going to do one more thing or he's going to not do one thing that he did the time before. It's exciting to watch, I think. I think that about covers the questions. You know, we could probably go on all night, but we know that you have uh, things to do, places to go, and people to see Matt. <laughs> yeah. Allegedly. Do you want uh, to talk, li- talk about? where people can find your work.
0: Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at HP Basketball, or if you uh, want a, an abbreviated version, you can follow me at Matt Moore CBS. Uh, you can catch all my work at Sports.com under the NBA section um i'm i've got a weekly column called the inbounds i've actually i noted evan turner's terrific plus minus this week uh, i think it's my second notice of him actually in in the uh in the inbounds and uh let's see probably not next week is the holiday i would say in two weeks i'm probably going to start next week i'll start it and i'm doing a deep dive on portland uh that will be coming out in two weeks
2: well you, oh, that's you, exciting you do realize that the, the plus minus monsters in portland will ma- will keep you honest on evan turner
0: you know, it's funny, just because it's like I, I I started commenting on it last year.
2: Yeah, trust me, uh, I was right there, because, right alongside you, because it was bad. Because it, it was really
0: funny. Like, yeah. I, like, like I felt bad, but it was also just like, look, he's literally like the worst in the league. Like, it was him, yeah. and, and then Crab, and like, it was unbelievable how bad they were, especially considering the eighteen million that they paid him. But this year, it wasn't just that the the numbers righted themselves. I actually like from the very start in preseason, I was like, wow, like. Evan looks really good. Like, he looks re- like, he is he's really locked in on both ends. Yeah. I've been very impressed with him this year. That's why, like, I looked at his, his shooting percentages and was like, huh, that's odd. Like, I was surprised at those numbers because the eye test has been very good, good for him
1: and the plus minus has been terrific as well. I think with him, he just looks so much more comfortable this year that that's probably your eye test right there is he just looks like he knows where he fits in, which is much easier for Portland fans to watch than last year where he was trying so hard to fit in and it wasn't quite clicking.
0: Yeah, I should note, however, that now, um, even though he's a plus overall, the Blazers are still 3.8 points better per 100 possessions with him off the floor. Just to cover off the base.
1: And with that... (laughs) Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate uh, hearing your perspective on it. Thanks uh, uh, for weighing in and answering all our questions. Dan, do you want to talk about where people can find you?
2: Yes, as always, you can find me on Twitter at DMerang. Um, We'll have some more surprises here coming up shortly. The new edition of the Blazers Edge podcast where we're going to go, hey, yeah, I know, more analytics stuff from me. Awesome. That'll be coming out here in the next few weeks as well as a few other surprises we have coming uh, about uh, the end of the holidays. So stay tuned for that. Uh, DMs are open as always for all your questions, comments, concerns for all things Blazers related.
1: Right on. And don't forget to follow Blazers Edge on Twitter. Subscribe to the Blazers Edge podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever podcast catcher you like. We're part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. Check out our podcast and all the other NBA podcasts at almightyballer.com. And with that, I think we'll take it out of here. Go Blazers!